We are in Mark chapter 15 tonight, and I want to get through this material. We spent a lot of time looking at pictures last week, but I want to go through verses 22 through 47 tonight. Uh, and I'm going to begin just reading uh, Mark 15, beginning in verse 22, and read through all the verses, then come back and make comments about them. I'll read in the uh, NIV. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means, that's a Greek word, which means the place of the skull. Golgotha means skull. We'll look at that. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour, and they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And that came from Pilate. That's the official accusation. You had to have an accusation. What was the crime of this criminal? Well, it's, it's to warn everybody else, don't, don't do this. They crucified two robbers with him, one on the right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So... You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. Notice it says, among themselves. I'll point out when we go through the notes. They're probably not standing at the cross. They're probably back in the city at a distance, maybe inside a house building somewhere, talking of con basically congratulating themselves. Well, if he is the Messiah, he, that shouldn't have happened to him. It's kind of like, well, that proves us right. If he's the Messiah, he'd get off the cross. You can't kill the Messiah, and we just keep, we're killing him. So, well, we must be right. So we'll talk about that. So verse uh, thir 31, in the same way the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves. He saved others, they says, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So the, the crowd, the chief priests, the thieves mocking him. At the sixth hour, dark, that's noon, came over the whole land until the ninth hour. That'd be three o'clock. So for three hours, there's darkness over the whole land. And at the ninth hour, three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's, it's still in the Aramaic. That's Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Uh, and so that's, the, Mark leaves it in, the uh, Aramaic, but he's writing in Greek for the Romans. And he translates it. My God, my God, he didn't translate it in English. That's the English translation. When some of those standing near heard this, they says, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he says, surely this man was the Son of God, which is more than just saying a Son of God. He was saying uh, that this was Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, or the lesser, and Joses, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him 
to Jerusalem were also there. So it names three women, and they're going to be seen standing at a distance. It was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, we'll talk a little bit about him, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, uh, which means he's a pious, devout follower of the law, went boldly to Pilate, and you just can't walk in on Pilate, and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, summoning the centurion. And this is the same centurion who just testified, this is the Son of God. Now he's standing in, in, in front of Pilate along with one of the leaders of the council. Uh, summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph, now he's going to do five things. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, placed it in the tomb, cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Five things he does. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. And they're going to be standing at a distance watching this take place. Okay, so that's what we're looking at now. Next, next week, chapter 16, verse 1, when it says, when the Sabbath was over, uh, these same three ladies are going to go to the tomb early, and the, the, the body's going to be missing, and we're going to have an interesting conversation, and we're going to mention it. I'll tell you what I think, but the, it appears, and you can see right there in your text, at verse 8 and going into verse 9, the most reliable manuscripts do not have verses 9 to the end of the book. So Mark potentially ends the book of Mark at verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End the book. Now, there's, there's quite a bit of discussion, uh, but most of the modern manuscripts or t uh, translations are going to say, hey, now the rest of these verses, the best manuscripts, these aren't found. They appear to surface later, which means they were around. They just weren't copied. Uh, we don't know. We'll talk about it, but there's something interesting coming up next week. I'll make some statements. And, uh, you know, you start pulling verses out of the Bible, you're going you're gonna to have face some cries of heretic, uh, which you should because you don't add to or take away. But remember that, so you don't want to take away. But also it says what? Don't add to. So it's like, well, we don't be taking verses out of the Bible. Right, but we don't be putting words into the Bible either. So it's like it's, it's a double-edged sword kind of. So anyway, but that's coming up next week. That's like, if you're bored with tonight, don't forget next week. Highlights from next week. Okay. And of course, that'll probably take, we'll still be doing that at Christmas. Okay, here's, here's the notes. English Standard Version now, page one. And once again, we've got the, uh, and I, you're, you're familiar with this. Here's the city, uh, the Temple Mounds over here. Uh, the Last Supper was down here. Herod's Palace, where Pilate was at, is right here. There's a gate that he goes out right here to the place of the skull. There's a, 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 a quarry, an abandoned quarry. The road goes right out here and into the town you can come in and go into the town here or in here if you follow the traditional site this is where Pilate was was right here at Fort Antonia Jesus came through the wall and came out this way or if you're at probably the more logical place at the Herod's palace he goes out this way the crucifixion is at Golgotha the tombs were cut into the abandoned quarry right here in fact the Calvary was just stone that was 
just abandoned. They couldn't cut it. It was not useful to make good stone. So they cut. In fact, some of it, you can go down to the basement and get underneath Calvary and kind of see where they, they, they cut some stone and stopped cutting. And they, you know, they got as much as they could that was useful. And that's, so those, those are right there. And like we said last week, that's about 125 feet apart from the place of the crucifixion and uh, the, uh, the burial place. But nonetheless, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. I've got Golgotha uh, in a square there in the, in the Greek notes. Uh, Golgotha, it means skull. Now, again, if you go up here outside the third wall out here in like 41, 44 A.D., they ended up building a third wall, tried to, and then eventually by 70 AD, they had a third wall here. Outside here, there's a, an Old Testament tomb, and there's a rock formation. I've got pictures of it. I don't have one available. And if you look at it, it looks like a skull. It's in all your Bible commentaries and your dictionaries. Golgotha will always have that picture. And even I've got a picture because you can see it. It looks like it's just broken rock, uh, original rock. It looks like a skull, and near that is a tomb which, seriously, it's like there's tombs all around Jerusalem. So look, well, there's the skull. looks like a skull. There's a tomb right there, right? There's a tomb right here and right here and right here, right here. There's a tomb right there. I mean, there's tombs everywhere. And so that's not that big a deal. So like I said, Protestants will call that the place of the skull and that tomb, but it's an old, Old Testament tomb, and that's not it. So the reasons this is called the skull could be a it's shaped like an outcropping of rock they may have as they walked in thought it looked like a skull as we see up here and again that could be the place i don't think it is or uh they call it the place of the skull because it's the place of execution you have a lot of skulls you know of people being executed uh, or a place where there are executions and then burials so there's a lot of skulls over here uh, I'm going to say this, and it's, it's really out there, uh, but it comes up when you get over here and talk about it in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount, this is really a whole rabbit trail that's, uh, the temple was right here, and the t- that was Mount Moriah, that's where David was told to build the temple, or, you know, for Solomon, and uh, that's where Abraham offered Isaac. The reason that's a special place is... That's where Adam was buried. Not biblically, traditionally. Adam's buried somewhere. But that's the idea. Adam's skull is buried there. And so a lot of times you'll hear this referred to the temples on over the top of the original sinner. And that's where atonement was made for the sin of the original sin uh, over the place of the skull. Well, this was destroyed in 70 AD. And the Christians never went up there. And that tradition of skull moved over here and you can see a lot of middle age drawings and stuff there's always going to be under the cross a skull because the cross where jesus died on the cross was right on top of guess whose tomb adam's tomb where his skull is at so you see that that's uh, that's a transference of a, a tradition plus that transference of tradition doesn't take place until after the scriptures are written because Mark's calling it the place of the skull in 30 A.D., but that still comes up. That's really, I'm just saying that because it's out there. It really has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But it's called the place of the skull. 
probably because it looks like a skull or because of all the executions that are taking place right there. Okay. Um, and again, it's on a crowded road. Uh, and, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take any. The wine mixed with myrrh, uh, it's, it's a reference to uh, a, a righteous man. It's something they would give a suffering person. It's something to help kind of kill the pain. Uh, it was like an act of mercy. This would be an act of mercy compared to they're going to offer him something to drink right before he dies, which is probably not an act of mercy. It's probably an act of, he's calling for Elijah. Don't, don't let him die yet. Let's see what happens. That's the second offering of a drink. Uh, this wine, Jesus refuses it probably because of two reasons. Because in chapter 14, verse 25, he says, I will not drink the cup of the vine again until I come into my kingdom. And this is wine mixed with myrrh. Uh, which would be some kind of a, you know, a, a, like painkiller, an anti-stimulant or something, uh, the myrrh, uh, and, uh, and he rejects it. Probably and the second reason is he does not want to have any, you know, have any kind of drugs affecting him while he's paying for this. And he wants a full, you know, I don't want to say he wants the full experience, but he, he is here to not avoid the situation. He's here to fully embrace the situation so he wants to be fully conscious and he is going to be fully conscious through this whole event and fully aware of what's going on although his soul's going to be suffering uh he's going to be in in clearly understanding that he's paying for the sins of the world he's not going to be like i don't understand i don't understand he is going to say my god my god why have you forsaken me he's apparently quoting psalm 22 we'll talk about that i'm sure he's being attacked as he has been from the beginning with you know temptations and thoughts but he's staying on track and this right here is not something he needs in his system to do the work that he's about to do so there's that uh page two of the notes and they crucified him and i said several times before those three words i've got them underlined there in the box and having crucified him that is mark's record of the crucifixion he's talking about things leading up to it talks about things that take place while jesus is on the cross but this is the description of Jesus suffering and they crucified him um and i've got that written down here and you can see pictures from last week on there and they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting lots for them to decide what each should take and this would be traditional uh a practice a custom of the four soldiers that are there overseeing the execution with the centurion uh it was kind of like well this guy doesn't need this anymore and part of their payment would be hey whatever they've got they'll take it they divided it up whatever they had um, and interestingly, they still treasure uh, or consider Jesus' garments worth something. It's hard for me to ma understand how anyone who's been through the beating and the bloody mess that his body is in, and then they put his garments back on and take him to the cross, is like, who would want these, these garments? These guys, they're going to say other places, they didn't want to tear them. They wanted to, this is too valuable. Let's just, let's, let's gamble for it. And the gambling could have been some kind of, you know, uh, pick a number. It doesn't mean they had dice, although they could have had dice. It doesn't say how they did. They're going to they're gonna cast lots for them. So they could have been casting, you know, stones. They could have been casting sticks, you know, how the sticks land, drawing straws, something. It, you can just go ahead and think they're rolling dice or something. But they're going to be playing some kind of a game to see who gets the garments. Um, page three. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And so it's the sun we can say would come up at six in the morning so that would be six seven eight nine this is the first hour second hour 
third hour. So this is the third hour of the day. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. We can follow this down. 9, 10, 11, 12 would be the sixth hour. That's going to be noon. And 12, 1, 2, 3, that's going to be the ninth hour of when he dies. So from the third to ninth hour is Jesus is on the cross and he's dead. So the ninth, twelfth, and third, uh, 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 nine o'clock, noon, and three o'clock in the afternoon. That's the third, sixth, and ninth hour. That's going to be coming up throughout this. So again, that's how fast that went. The trials, remember, started as soon as they could at sunrise, and within three hours, the guy's on the cross. And so they they say the two greatest systems, the greatest uh, judicial system and the greatest religious system. Of, of, uh, of justice collapse at this time. Jews and Romans, their systems collapse, and Jesus, and the innocent man, ends up on the cross in a matter of three hours. Um, and the inscription of the charge against them, the king of the Jews, that's important. Uh, both the Roman and Jewish had a custom or even a law that if you're going to execute someone, you've got to identify the crime. It's got to be publicly identified. And again, the reason for that is that's why they're being crucified on this main road. People are coming and going. They can see, oh, oh, he was, you know, doing 60 in a 55. And they, oh, don't go 60 in a don't Don't speed through a school zone. It's like they crucify you for that or whatever. And that's what they're, they're seeing as they're coming in. It's like advertising the, uh, the law of the land. Um, and Jesus' crime was Pilate's charges, not the religious leaders. Remember, the religious leaders, and this is going to come up later on uh, again, the religious leaders wanted to charge him with blasphemy. And you can only blaspheme God. You can't blaspheme a man. You can lie about a man. You can say something bad about a man. But you can't blaspheme a man. You can only blaspheme God. And so they're, they're, they wanted to have him blaspheming their God. Uh, Pilate chose, though, to go with uh, a political statement that he claims to be the king of the Jews, and it does a couple things. It gave Pilate cover for defending Caesar's position. So when they come back and say, you're no friend of Caesar, it's like, yeah, well, this guy claimed to be in Caesar's position, and I killed him. So, again, I think Pilate had sympathy for Jesus, but hey, if I'm going to go through with this, we're going to put my charges on or not. He blasphemed the Jewish God. I'm killing, Pilate would be saying, I'm executing a criminal because he blasphemed the Jewish God. Heck, I blasphemed the Jewish God, he could say. So that, he's not going to put him up for that. He's going to have Jesus executed for a crime that he would support. Uh, you claim to be king. Uh, and number two, but it also not, uh, it did not please the religious crowd or the Jewish mob, so he's not doing them a favor. But also, uh, by claiming that Jesus was executing the Jewish king, that this had it was like a little dig at him, this is your king? Is this the one that's coming to rescue the Jews? Yeah, uh, well, the king is coming. Our king, your Messiah is coming. Well, I just nailed him on a cross. Now who's coming? So in other words, he's making fun of the Jews. Here's your king. Who's going to save you now? I just executed your king. We didn't say he's our king. Well, yeah, that's the, one of the claims. And so he's taking a shot. He's protecting himself, but also taking a cheap shot at the Jews, but also correctly, as we're going to read here, correctly identifying Jesus. In fact, he's like the centurion says, this is the Son of God. Was Pilate saying, this is the, this is the Messiah? Again, I don't think that's the case, but he's mocking the Jews protecting his political position as the governor, but also correctly identifying Jesus Christ. So it's, it's the best thing to put on there um, from Pilate's position. 
It says, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. The word robbers, you can see right there, is lestes. Uh, it's a word used often by Josephus, but Josephus uses it to refer to, and this would fit our story, zealots. And these would be your political terrorists. These are not the devout Jews. These are not the religious Jews. These are the political Jews who are trying to overthrow Rome. They're the enemies of the Roman Empire, and they're zealots. Even Simon the Zealot was one of Jesus' disciples. And you see there's a, a mishmash of disciples. Uh, one's a tax collector for the Romans. One's a zealot killing Romans. And now they're both following Jesus. And there's a mixture of fishermen, small business, big business. You've got James and John, big business fishermen. And then the, you know, the local fish shop, Peter. Uh, and so they've got big business, small business, zealots, and, and tax collectors all mixed in. And it's interesting. Anyway, when it says two criminals or two thieves, Josephus used the word for zealots. It may mean they were Romans' political enemies that had, they would, the, the Sakari were part of the zealots and they would be, uh, they'd get into crowds and they would like, like especially at like at a crucifixion or a big mob or something, and they'd start stabbing their own citizens, stabbing Jews, and then claiming the, the Romans are killing people, trying to get people worked up into a frenzy. It happens with Paul when Paul's arrested. They work the crowd into a frenzy and the Romans don't know what's going on. They t- think Paul's some kind of a terrorist. So they bring him up to uh, Fort Antonia off the Temple Mount. And so these zealots were a problem at this time. They were a problem during the Jewish wars, and Josephus refers to them. So it's, it's, it's worth considering that these two criminals were actually zealots who were, had actively terrorized Rome at some, or had, had some plans, and their leader may have been Barabbas. And Barabbas should have been right there in the middle with his two patriots dying with him and jesus is going to take the place of barabbas again that's again we know information now we're kind of putting it in and kind of speculating so be careful um it says chapter or point three isaiah 53 12 we got verses like isaiah 53 psalm 22 we'll be referring to here coming up uh but it says he poured out his soul this is a prophecy about the messiah He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressor. So he himself is going to, his soul is going to go to death. He's going to die, but he's going to be numbered like a transgressor, like a zealot he's going to be killed or like a criminal. Yet he's not dying for his sin. He's going to be dying for the sin of many and making intercession for those transgressors that he's paying for their sins. That's what Isaiah 53 talks about. That's, that's the Messiah. That's the, the servant of the Lord that's going to come. Now, when it talks about, Isaiah's talking about the servant of the Lord in those verses, uh, those prophetic verses, 52, 53. And uh, we as Christians see those servant of the Lord as being Jesus, the Messiah. The Jews, when they read them, they read those verses as either one of other two things. It could be the Messiah, like we would say. They would say Isaiah is talking about himself, that he himself is suffering. But that's a type of Israel, Israel suffering. So a lot of times, instead of reading Jesus into the verse, if you've got a group of Jews over here studying Isaiah 53, a group of Christians studying Isaiah 53, we're going to see, ah, this is Jesus. Jesus fulfilled these verses. 
the Jews are going to say Isaiah was talking about his own struggle, and we as a people are the ones that are numbered among the transgressors. We're the ones, we're the, the suffering servant of God. Isaiah was the suffering servant. Now the Jewish nation is the suffering servant. We as Christians know Jesus was the suffering servant. So again, that's the tension right there. That's how people, how can the Jews miss all this? They're not missing anything. They're just redirecting it. And again, and they're saying we, just like I would make fun of the Mormons for, for their ridiculous theology. The Jews look at me teaching this and my ridiculous. Well, even the Old Testament prophesied, you know, Moses says there'll be another prophet like me. Well, yeah, that's what Joseph Smith said. And I'm that prophet, Joseph Smith would say. You know, so it's like what we say, well, Joseph Smith thinks uh, the Bible prophesied that he was coming. It's like, well, that's stupid. I mean, who believes that? Well, the Mormons. Well, we say the Bible prophesied Jesus was coming. And now that's solid. But the Jews look at us talking about Jesus like we look at the Mormons talking about Joseph Smith. So again, there's, it's like, that's how, it's like, that's how, like, why, why don't they see this? It's like, why don't you believe in Joseph Smith? Because it's stupid. Why don't the Jews believe in Jesus? Because in their position, es, es, uh, 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 exegetically, it's like, that's, that's as dumb as us embracing Joseph Smith. Okay, enough of that. Um, Again, I think we're right, but you've got to understand their position, too. Uh, and again, I, I said this before, uh, uh, the, the Jesus, James and John wanted to be seated at his right and at his left, and if they would have gotten their wishes, they would be seated possibly right here, seated on crosses with Jesus. Uh, and I mentioned this sometime, but uh, all the way through this, this, this crucifixion, the, the, the trials and his crucifixion, Jesus being the royalty uh, or the king is emphasized over and over. It's almost as if you can't escape it. Even if you're going to mock him, even your mocking is going to point to this. Unknowingly, you're going to, in, in your, in your just jesting, you're going to end up leading right here. And Here's some examples. I think I've read this before to you. I can't, it seems very familiar. Chapter 15, verse 2, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Chapter 15, verse 9, He answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Chapter 15, verse 26, The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They put a purple robe on him, which is royal colors. That's why they did it. They put the crown of thorns on him because that's the crown of thorns, the, the, the royal. And they mocked him, hail, king of the Jews. And then chapter 15, verse 32, the mocking bystanders themselves are going to say, he's the king of Israel, mocking him. And the thieves seated on the cross on Jesus' right and on his left were seated as if they're his right and left-hand side of him coming into his kingdom, which he actually was being, you know, doing the work of earning the kingdom. Uh, so the marks go throughout the book. Uh, at the beginning of Mark, uh, Jesus said to be the Son of Man. Uh, here he's identified as the Messiah, the King of Israel, and the centurion is going to see all of this and say he's the Son of God. So it's like you cannot the the idea that Mark is getting at here, and I would agree with it. And I think it's scripture. But the idea that it's like with Jesus' very presence, he's the, the son of man. He's the king of the Jews. 
He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And everybody sees it. You cannot escape. It's like living on the earth and not seeing the sun. It's like, it's there. Well, I don't believe in the, the sun exists. I don't believe air exists. <laughs> Whatever you do, but you, the very fact you're here, you're, ex, you're, you're embracing it. Okay, uh, page four. Now, here we come to verse, verse 28. And if you look in your Bibles, I'm not sure what your Bibles have. You may, you may your, your Bibles, chapter 15 is going to go chapter 15, verse 27. Chapter 15, verse 29. Do you even have a 28? You may not even have a 28 in your Bible. The verse 28 is missing, potentially, unless you have a King James. If you have a King James, it's going to be there, and it's going to say, And the Scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, the reason it's not in any Bibles except the King James is, who's got it? In which translation? Okay, New King James. Uh, is because there are, there's, again, I've got it in the framework book, the Byzantine text, uh, if you're a King James only person right now, you're, you're shutting this off, you're saying heretic, and that, that's fine, I understand where you're at. Uh, I disagree though. Uh, and so does the English Standard Version, the NIV, the New American Standard, and many scholars that are textual critics. Not higher critics, but people that look and look at the, the facts. Again, if you, if you don't like this, you're not going to like chapter 16. Uh, and then you're going to have the earlier manuscripts. The Byzantine, the early, obviously the scriptures were written in the first century, and then they copied them, and they copied them into the second century. Uh, we got manuscripts, the book of John, the John Ryland manuscript, uh, the earliest, that's right around 110. It's a fragment of the book of John, so it's, it, we can see it. And it matches what we have today. So there's, there's no uh, uh, problem. But anyway, the... Uh, as it began to be copied, the earlier the manuscripts, manuals say manuscripts, or the uh, uh, Sinaiticus, the, the Bibles are coming from like 350, 400, Codex Vaticanus, different things like this. Uh, these do not have this verse. Again, you could do a better job of cleaning this up exactly, get all the references and do all the, it's, at, it's called the appendix at the bottom of the, or the apparatus, at the bottom of a Greek, at the bottom of a Greek page. Like here's, here's your Greek Bible, and you may have a line of Greek text like right here, a few lines, and then there's going to be a line right here of some sort, and then down here is going to be all the footnotes explaining which manuscripts they used to get all this. This right here explains why they put it right here. You're not interested in that, but they're comparing all of this saying we've made the right decision because, you know, not every, you don't go to Jerusalem and say, can I see the Bible that God gave Moses or that God gave Paul? It, well, it's not there. You've just got letters that were sent out and copied and it had to be assembled during time was put together again it's the old testament's the same way okay so all these footnotes explaining where the best comes from is going to be the older manuscripts but then as it's copied by the time you get up to 900 let's say 900 to 1400 a.d that's the byzantine text coming out of the roman christian empire it's been copied for 900 years by this time all the Everything's smoothed out because it's become, they're, they're reading it in churches, the big, big cathedrals, and they, they smooth out. Even There's even copied into it certain things that you would say in a church service. 
Now again, if you, if you don't like this, you don't like this. But they weren't here. But they are here. And so obviously someone added it into the text. It appears, the scholars say, that this verse right here, and the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors, is someone potentially just like my Bible. See my Bible? Look, at, just right there. See all the writing in that Bible. It'd be like if someone says, oh, let's copy, like this is the only copy left. The apocalypse happens. And the only Bible left is Galen's NIV. And they got, everybody's got to come rush to West Des Moines and copy Galen's NIV. And he's got footnotes in it. Well, eventually one of my footnotes is going to end up in the text. And then it's going to be copied again like 20 times. And you say, well, that's, that's in the Bible. It's like, well, it wasn't originally in the Zondervan manuscript, but Galen copied it in the notes. And because you all copied Galen's and copied copies of Galen's, it's going to end up in the text. And so it appears that 1528 was a scholar putting a footnote in it sometime from the earliest time until it shows up in the Byzantine text. And they're going to create, Erastus creates a Greek text for you to, in the Middle Ages, say 14, 15, 1600s, to copy into your European language. Martin Luther used it to make a German copy. Uh, Tyndale's going to use it to make an English copy. And then he dies for it. Uh, because that's wrong. You can't have an English Bible. And, and the church and the king killed him. It wasn't like the, the atheists. It was the Christians that killed him. Anyway, he's got this Greek text, and it's only, he's got to combine like five Byzantine manuscripts, and the whole Bible's not even there. In fact, there's certain portions of Revelation that, that he doesn't even have. So he's got to use a Latin vulgate translate it into greek and then trans and put it in here so you can translate it into here so you don't even have a greek manuscript you've got a latin manuscript you're translating backwards into greek to go ahead and so you can translate it so this is called textus receptus textus receptus means the received text like the received text like we received this from the lord that god gave this text so you don't mess with the received text. You don't mess with Texas Receptus because God gave it to Erasmus or Erastus. Now, nonetheless, none of these were available. They weren't found. And some of them were available, but they were in other countries. We're talking about Europe in the Middle Ages. Many of them hadn't been discovered yet. And then as they discovered, it's like, whoa, that changes things. It doesn't change the story. It just purifies the text, takes it back a little original. So if you're King James only, you swear by manuscripts from 900 to 1400 A.D. Anything before? I don't want to hear it. Yeah, but this was added. Heretic? I can show you where it was added. It's like, I don't, I grew up, and you know, like I had a lady at church tell, I told you, uh, we were having a conversation this was 30 years ago. If the King James was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for us today. Amen, sister, preach it. It's like, okay, that, that, that's, and that's exactly where I think this comes, that becomes very emotional and religious and uh, not very academic, although we're, we believe in spiritual things. We want as close as we can to the truth. Okay, so that's why that verse is not there. That's way more time than we have for that. And if you disagree with me, I apologize. 
Um, now, chapter 15, verse 29. And those who passed by derided him. And I got that word derided, underlined, and boxed in the Greek text because that word derided him is the word blasphemed. So those who passed by blasphemed him, weighing their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and, re and rebuilt it in three days. So they're blaspheming. Mark says they are blaspheming the man Jesus. And you cannot blaspheme a man because you can only blaspheme God. So he's using a word that technically means even as they're mocking him, they're blaspheming. You're not mocking him because he's God. You're blaspheming, which is the very thing he's on the cross for according to the Jews, because he blasphemed, and now you're at the foot of the cross blaspheming, which means uh, it's not going to end well for you. It's like, if you think he deserves death for his crime, which isn't a crime, because it's true, you're in a, in a heap of trouble. So that's point one underneath that. Mark uses blaspheme. Since Jesus is God, they could blaspheme him. Chapter 15, verse 30, save yourself and come down from the cross. Again, I'm going to go back and read that verse before. And again, this may reveal my ignorance or my simplicity or something. But, and it may be a reference to the fact that they heard something that's not directly recorded in the Bible. But, aha, uh -huh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Uh, what is that referring to? John says and talks about, you, he says, you destroy this body and I'll resurrect it in three days or I'll rise it, raise it in three days. He wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body. So where did Jesus say that he, he's going to tear the temple down and rebuild it in three days? Clearly in the text of Scripture. And again, you may say, ah, oh, I, I know where it's at. And I, I, it's, it's like they've taken like bits and pieces of messages and kind of crunched it together. It's like, no, that, that four out of, out of context statements and they put them together and this is what we don't, that's stupid. Well, yeah, there are four statements out of context, not even related to each other. Or I wonder if maybe I'm missing something or if he did say this, if, if there's going to be, if this is a prophecy that he is going to, when he returns, he's going to tear down Remember the temple they're going to build for the Antichrist. There's going to be a temple rebuilt right here, I believe. The, the, they, and when they build that, they're not worshiping God. They're, they're thinking they are, but God's done with that. Because we're, we, see, we see God enter the tabernacle in Moses' day. The glory came down. They, it's recorded. And the glory entered, but he stood back and watched. And when Solomon built the temple, there was a day where the glory came down. And even the priests couldn't operate because the, the cloud was so thick, God entered the temple. And then in Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel sees, and I've got maps of it, and we've talked about it, he sees the glory of God leave the, the, the most holy place, come to the front of the temple, the threshold, and then depart going up over the Mount of Olives and going east. And the, he sees the glory leave the temple. And then Zerubbabel comes back, they rebuild the temple, they get it done. There's no record of the glory entering the temple again. They, they don't even have an ark. The ark isn't even, the ark is gone. They never, the ark disappears in Jeremiah's day. So the glory never returns, which is going to play into our story here tonight, because the glory can never leave. Because the glory never, you see the glory leave in Ezekiel, and you see in chapter, is it like 43, 
you see the glory in some eschatological day in the future come down on Mount of Olives and leave the Mount of Olives and re-enter the temple. But that day has not happened. I don't think anybody, you know, I haven't researched it, but I don't, that's an eschatological event. That's, that didn't happen in Zerubbabel's day. That didn't happen in the New Testament. That didn't happen in Herod's temple. That's, never, that's the glory of God returning for the kingdom age. So we see it come down in the tabernacle. We see it come down in Solomon's temple. We see it leave before the Babylonian destruction. And the next thing we see is in the end times, after the tribulation, the Lord returns and enters the temple. So there's, there's no glory in that temple. They had the services, and the temple got tore down. Again, and I, I may be missing some you know, religious things. Uh, but the temple that's going to be rebuilt by the Jews, uh, they're going to follow the pattern just like Zerubbabel or Herod uh, do. But it's going to last three and a half years, and then the Antichrist is going to enter it and take over. And he's not going to die. He's, I mean, he's, they're going to, they're just going to flee. What's going on? Well, you're completely wrong. Maybe. And so when Jesus does, the glory does come down, like it says in Ezekiel, say, 43, and the glory of God enters the temple again, that temple, there's going to be a new temple built. And you can read it. Ezekiel even gives you the measurements of Ezekiel's temple, the kingdom age temple. It's huge. I mean, there's de- great detail. He walks all the way around and measures it. And so is he going to destroy the, uh, the tribulation temple and within three days have the, tri- uh, the, the millennial temple built? So in other words, is that phrase, uh, ah, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, is that something that is yet actually going to take place? Although they've confused the thing or it's not explicitly clear, or did Jesus say something like that referring to the days of Ezekiel, when he's going to land on the his feet will land on the Mount of Olives. The angel says the same Jesus you saw ascend is going to come back the same way he leaves. He's going to leave the Mount of Olives and walk right from this point right here into possibly through the Golden Gate and have his temple. And how's it going to get built? I mean, just snap his fingers and it's just, you know, like some, you know, Disneyland thing. Or is it going to actually have to be constructed, like maybe 3D printed or something? Okay. <coughs> anyway. There's that verse. Uh, and they say, besides saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. That's them mocking him. And again, if he had done, point one on 15.3, if he had, say, okay, and just jumped down off the cross, say, ta-da, I am God. It's like that would have been a sign, but it wouldn't have been the work of salvation. Uh, it would have been the fulfillment of the prophecies. It would have been anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Scripture, anti-prophecy. And if they and he would say, oh, I am God, they well, now we believe in you. Okay, you believe in a sign, but there's no prophecy that he's going to be on the cross and then pop off the cross. But there are prophecies that he's going to suffer and die and that he's going to come back. Uh, and we'll see those verses. You know, God says, I will not let my Holy One see decay. Peter's going to pick up on that. So faith and salvation cannot be attained by a sign. And faith, like salvation, you have to believe in the work of the person of the cross. Now, here's the thing. You, you have to, this, this, is, this is hard for the Western mind in the church to, be, to wrap around. You have to, you have to understand. You have to have some kind of knowledge. You have to know the person 
of Jesus. You're going to have to understand this story, hear the information, and believe this account. You can't wait. If you don't know the story, you don't know the person, and maybe all you've heard is the name Jesus, and someone's going to do a magic trick or some kind of miracle in the name of Jesus, and you're going to believe in what? The magic, the, the miracle that they did in the name of Jesus and you believe, what do you believe? I believe that that was a miracle. That was, that was beyond what those guys are, pen and tell. It's like, it's like that, that, I don't understand how that happened. I, I, I believe that was a miracle. Okay. And that's just amazing. But do you, what do you, you gotta, you gotta know something. And what you have to know is you have to know the person, that he is the king, the savior, he paid for his sins. You have to know Jesus, the person, and there's no sign or magic or you can have something that will confirm this message. You have to have the message. And so the very fact that they're saying, do something amazing and we'll believe, well, we don't need to know anything. We just need to see you do something that will amaze us and we'll believe. And, of course, you've got the entire wilderness generation, 40 years, in the, 40 years of seeing miracles in the wilderness, starting with 10 plagues in Egypt and 40 years of daily manna. Is that how you spell manna? Is there two ends? 40 years of manna. And guess what? They died in the wilderness because they were a generation, a generation of no faith. They were a faithless generation. They saw more miracles, more signs, more wonders. They saw the glory of God come down into the tabernacle. They saw Korah be consumed. They saw, and it's like that whole generation, God says, okay, I'll just wait for you all to die before I get to the next generation. And so clearly, if we, make it a, if we can make a, 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 a doctrinal statement, faith does not come from miracles. Otherwise, that generation would have been the most amazed generation. Faith comes from knowledge of factual information of knowing who Jesus is and what he's done. You've got to have fact. Now, again, this is so anti-Christian. Like, see, because we're Gnostics. See, we're Gnostics. Gnostics wanted to have in the, in the oh boy, I'm off track, I'm off track. The, the thing that even John started, we talked about at the end of, church yesterday serenthus the gnostic who was teaching false doctrine even in john's they say 85 90 a.d he was in a bathhouse with john according to ignatius in ephesus and when john saw serenthus there he says to his fellow disciples that he was with let us flee this bathhouse because the enemy of God is here, Serenthus, and we don't know when judgment's going to come, like when it came on Korah. It's like the sons of Korah had enough sense to get away from the father's tents because hell's about to break loose, and they were saved because they left. And John's saying the same thing, let's get away from Serenthus. Now again, judgment didn't come that day for Serenthus, but the idea there was Serenthus was teaching Gnosticism, that there's a higher knowledge and this knowledge is, right here, I just said knowledge, but this knowledge is spiritual. This will give you access to a spiritual dimension beyond the natural world, beyond what we would say the flesh. 
Now, when you use the word flesh, sarke, like Paul used, he's talking about the sin nature. But when you talk about flesh as in natural, like God made man out of the dust and breathed into him, into his body, his flesh, and the seed of the woman will become man, and that man, Jesus, took on flesh and died on the cross for the sins, that all had to be done with flesh in the natural realm. It had to be done in reality, in fact, this produced truth or knowledge or information. It all happens here. The Gnostics want to go, oh, we don't want this. In fact, they considered all the flesh, anything worldly was evil, but our higher spiritual knowledge, and you can see this right here in our culture today, people want to be spiritual. They want to, like, I had a vision or a spirit appeared to me and spoke. Now, if I were to start telling you about a spirit or an angel coming to me, and be like, whoa, he must be a man of God. Yeah, or being visited by demons. It's like spiritual doesn't mean good or bad any more than flesh means good or bad. You've got, you know, uh, the scene, like uh, uh, Paul writes, he created the seen and unseen. You've got good and bad flesh. You've got good and bad spiritual. What you've got down here, though, in the flesh, God is going to manifest his truth. Now, he can manifest his truth spiritually. But your man, he's going to give you facts, information, knowledge, that you can have faith in this substance. If you do not have any, you have no Bible, you have no facts, you've got nothing to believe, you can't have faith. You can't know Jesus. Well, I believe in God. What does that mean, you believe in God? I believe in a higher power. I believe in that we came from somewhere. Okay, you're not really going anywhere. You're looking for the beginning of the universe or something. And so when we talk about facts, we're not just talking about you know science. We're talking about information that can be heard. Well, here it is, Romans 10, 10. Is it 10, 10? It's in chapter 10. Uh, Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of truth or the word of God. So you're going to have to have faith. How do you have faith? You're going to have to hear. And what are you going to hear? You're going to have to hear the knowledge, the facts, the word of God. You're going to have to hear, we'll say, the word. You hear the word, you can place faith in it. Well, I saw an angel. Okay, did the angel give you the word? Did the angel give you something to believe? He pulled a rabbit out of a hat. It was amazing. There wasn't even a hat there. It's like, wow. So you believe faith in what? An angel pulling a rabbit out of a non-existent hat? It's like there's nothing there. You've got to have the Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word. You're going to have to have truth. You're going to have something absolute that the whole universe is based on that you're going to hear. You're going to trust it, which is called faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's, that's Paul teaching that. Okay. Okay, 10, uh, Romans 10, 17. Thank you. Again, it's been a long time since I went down that road. I'm sorry. That, that's 1980 Galen preaching. So that's been a while since. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, 
Chapter 15, verse 30. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Again, that, the whole point for saying that, that's how ridiculous. Okay, let's say he does that. Well, you have nothing to believe in because he just nullified all the, all the scriptures. Just anything that you heard and could have faith in, he just nullified it. There's nothing to believe. He just destroyed scripture, which, of course, is possible or is, is impossible. Chapter 15, verse 31. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another. So again, I'm, I'm going to add into this the idea here. Is they're not at the cross mocking him like the mob or the passerby is going by. They've already done their, you know, dirty deed. They did it at night. They had the, the consul. They had everybody. They got him in front of Pilate. They've got him executed. And now they may not even be at the cross. They could be, some of them. But I would say they're back somewhere else. They've just accomplished what they thought was impossible. And now they're going to justify. Okay, they're going to justify. Here's the cross, and here's Jesus on the cross right here. And he is supposed to be the king. He's supposed to be the son of God. He's supposed to be the Messiah. Okay, now, we never believed in him, but now he's nailed on the cross. What happens if he is? Listen, if he is, you can't do that to him, okay? If he's a superhero, is that how you treat superheroes? Can you do that to a superhero? I don't think so. The very fact he's on the cross is, and so they're mocking him or congratulating themselves. They're justifying themselves. So this is right here. So, the, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. I mean, they, they've seen the miracles. They've heard the testimonies. They know that he has done miracles. The Jews, even today, know by their rabbis that came after that he did miracles. They call it magic. They never say he was a trickster. They say he deceived the people with his magic. Now, when you do magic, you're doing something that can't be explained. You've never said to me, that was magic. Because I've never done anything amazing. You, everything that you've ever seen me do, it's like, yeah, I understand that, or he can't say that word. It's like, I mean, it's everything's, but you never, it's like, I don't understand. It's just beyond understanding. Even the way they describe him and mock him, they put him in the category of, of a demon. They put him in the category of evil. He was tricking people. He was doing magic. He was, they don't say, he didn't even exist. No, 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 they attack him. The rabbis after the time of Christ still spent time attacking and, and calling him names, even had names for him. So right here, the very fact they're saying, so the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, they say, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. One thing they want to say, you want us to believe? Then get off the cross, Messiah. If you're the Messiah, then jump off the cross, and then you, okay, you're right. But again, he'd be nullifying Scripture. But what they're actually doing is they're just fine. Okay, well, we, they talk about how hard it was going to be, how to trap them. They had to deceive. They had to lie. They had to, they had to do it in the nighttime. And it was a hard, they didn't know, they were, they're going to wait until after the feast. They knew they couldn't, they weren't ready. They weren't ready to pull the trigger yet. They had to wait. And all of a sudden, wow, we did it. Okay, well, I think we're right because, listen, if he was the Messiah, like we thought he was going to be hard to do, that wasn't that hard. I mean, we did it, we did it by 9 o'clock this morning. I mean, he's on the cross by 9 this morning. If he's the Christ, let him come down. He's not. Yeah, that's right. You know. And they're, they're ready for the holidays. They're ready for, for Passover.
Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three solid hours, it's dark. And that darkness, of course, uh, it's, a, it's not a solar eclipse because that would not match the full moon at that time of the year. Dust, it's the spring. This is going to be not a dust storm. The best example of this or explanation is this is divine. And the Old Testament, Amos, for example, Amos 8, 9, Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, 60, 1 through 3, uh, talks about I, God saying, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Or for behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. It, it is, uh, the darkness is an, is an eschatological, eschatological uh, event. It's an end time event. And so that darkness that covers the earth, the whole, or, you know, the, that area, however it was, I mean, we don't know. I mean, people looking at records, did it cover the whole earth? Is it recording it in China and Europe? Is there darkness at this time? And some of you have tried to make connections. But the, the authors of the Gospels record that it was, and that's definitely an eschatological event of God supernaturally bringing darkness like he did on the land of Egypt. So that's that point right there. Chapter 15, verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, again, that, that is right in the Aramaic, which was the, the, a style of Hebrew that they spoke. <coughs> My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now we are in Psalm 22. Um, and uh, this is where I'm, I'm thinking, boy, I did not get through these notes, and I am so sorry. Uh, we're going to have to pick this up next week. What I would like to do right here is start next week with Psalm 22. Several things are happening right here. Um, Jesus is, is, uh, is, getting ready, is, is, is getting ready to die. And he's quoting Psalm, it appears he's quoting Psalm 22, because he's going to quote, and we'll flip over to Psalm 22, and we'll, we'll begin here next week. Uh, I guess we're going to be talking about Mark 16 in two weeks. Uh, Psalm 22, uh, and it's just many verses are being fulfilled during this time, including the darkness. Um, and it, it's possible, it doesn't say it explicitly, but it does quote the, be, the beginning of Psalm 22 and the last verse of Psalm 22 on the cross. Um, it may be that Jesus is describing things scripturally. I mean, it's so, it's so defined in Scripture, this crucifixion, so laid out, that every detail is within the prophecies itself. And here's Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? And of course, Jesus would be groaning. He's suffering, and he's calling it, my God, my God. And this, this chapter is about the one who suffers. And, and like Job, listen, the one who suffers, is, it's real suffering. It's, it's actual, I'll just say, real it's, it's suffering in real time. It can be suffering that you don't understand. I don't understand. If, again, here we are. If God were real, why is he letting me suffer? I have prayed. I cry out to you day and night, and I continue to suffer. Okay? 
is your faith based on your, your uh, deliverance? Faith comes from deliverance. And deliverance comes from being happy. Or is your faith in uh, the, the word, the truth, the promise, the character, the nature of God? And Jesus is suffering. It is real. And it's like, why? Now, again, he's going to understand why he's suffering, suffering for the sins of the world. But like Job, Job didn't understand why is this happening. And, there was, and there's several, we give examples of people that, I do not understand why this is happening. And they're not told the answer. The curtain's not pulled back. It says, you see, this is why it's happening. You did something uh, many years ago you're being punished for. Oh, now I understand. That's not it. You're being punished because, well, Satan uh, has asked this, Jesus, his disciples uh, at the Last Supper, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. Oh, good. Deliverance? Oh, no, no. When you recover. When you recover, strengthen your brothers. What do you mean you prayed for me? I prayed that you're going to fall. You're all going to fail. You're all going to, in real time, are going to suffer and be losers. But you're going to recover, and when you recover, strengthen your brothers. So the issue here is, is not the deliverance. The issue is, in this time of suffering, is knowing this truth. And the promise, you are going to be in the kingdom. In the end, you will be with Christ. It is better by far, even in the coming. Look at the cross. Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before him endured the cross. The cross, you can't think of anything more cruel than the cross. But the, Jesus looked at it, compared the cross, which was the most hideous suffering, considered it joy because it was going to produce something over here that was beyond comparison. And so he's on the cross suffering in reality because he knows this promise. He's got joy for the joy set before him. He endures this to get to this point right here. So by knowing this, knowing this word, this truth, you can hear this and you can have faith in the... Boy, this is hard. I mean, this is easy. This is exciting to teach. I don't want to live this. I don't want to be Jesus on the cross. I don't want to be Job in the story of Job. I don't want to be the apostles crucified upside down, getting decapitated. But this right here, this truth will give you faith. And in Psalm 22, we'll pick it up next week, this is about a man, Psalm 22 is about a man, David's writing it, who is suffering, but he knows, I don't see anything, I don't understand anything, but I know that you will not forsake me that there is deliverance coming somewhere. My goal, my job, is to just hold on to this and not quit, not give up. And look at how many times Jesus could have abandoned the cross, or Paul or Peter. Peter, of course, gave a couple examples of him actually abandoning and coming back. Um, so that, that's what this Psalm 22 is about. It's about a man who is suffering but will continue to stand firm, waiting for God's deliverance to come. And uh, Jesus is quoting that psalm because he's, doing, he, he's got full confidence this is not the end of the story. Full confidence this is not the end of the story. But you still have to go through the real story. 
And so that's kind of what Psalm 22 is about. We'll pick that up next week. And, and I appreciate you being here. And uh, uh, I guess I can believe we didn't make it through the notes. But at the same time, I thoroughly thought we would nail it this week. Because I think I've taken three shots at these notes already. So don't tell anybody. I'll pray and, and we're free to go or you can ask some questions. Father, do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We thank you for your word. We thank that you've given us something better than miracles and signs and wonders that you've given us, the truth, the solid word of God, the prophecies uh, predicting and promising what you are doing and what is going to take place. We want to be able to stand today having heard the word to produce that faith and confidence in you. Again, we do ask for strength in times of trial. And again, thank you again for the opportunity to live at this time in history and ask that we may share the good news with others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your time.